1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Pierre de Lancer. In the past half a century, the nature of conflict and war has evolved significantly, not only technically, but also in the way that war is represented in photography and media. Since the Vietnam War, the way we see conflict through film, photographs and pixels has had a powerful impact on the political fortunes of the campaigns and the way that war has been conducted. In Killing for Show, Photography, War and the Media in Vietnam and Iraq, Julian Stalabras tells the story of post-war conflict, how it was recorded and remembered through its iconic photography. Through accounts of events such as the Mele Massacre, the violent suppression of insurgents Fallujah, or the atrocities at Abu Ghraib, Stalabras maps a comprehensive theoretical re-evaluation of the relationship between war, politics, and visual culture. We recorded this conversation before Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February 2022. Julian Stalabras is an art historian, photographer, and curator and professor at the Kautal Institute of Art, and I'm very happy to say that he joins me now to discuss his work. Welcome to the show, Julian.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: Julian, I hold in my hand a very handsome, but also a heavy and substantial volume of writing about photography, media, conflict and war. Some of which is historical, some of which is theoretical, some of which is downright technical. And I'm interested, before we get into any of the details of the book, how you came to work on these topics you write in the book about your experience of curating the brighton photo biennial at some point and i'm kind of overwhelmed at how one can make a transition between a curatorial project and a scholarly one
0: well i'm uh you know i'm an art historian uh fundamentally uh and i work at the portal institute of arts uh so book writing is perhaps more my thing than curation (laughs) But um, back in 2006, I was asked to curate the Brighton Photobarnial, And I'd done little bits of curation before, but this was the first thing on such a scale because it was across many venues. And, and it was in the middle of the Iraq war. And so mm-hmm. warfare was a lot on my mind, as on many other people's. Uh, and I decided to use these different venues to try and build a kind of cumulative picture of the different ways in which photography especially was used in warfare, uh, and the range of it as well, from amateur images uh, right through to uh, professional army photographers, Mm -hmm. photojournalists, uh, long-term documentarians, and also those disreputable images that circulate in magazines and online of atrocities and uh, blown apart bodies and so on, which were examined by Thomas Herschelman with a piece called Mm -hmm. The Incommensurable Banner, which he showed in Brighton. So yeah, uh, so that event uh, eventually took place in 2008. Uh, we couldn't do a catalogue at the time because the organisation ran out of money. And eventually, I did produce us uh, an edited book using many of the materials that we built together in the biennial, including lots of interviews with uh, with photographers, called "Memory of Fire," uh, which was also the title of the biennial. But i would always wanted also to write. A single authored book uh, about all this. It seemed to me it was a very rich, difficult, and diverse subject, which had not been written about in a truly concerted way, despite the fact that, especially after 2001 and the offence of 9 11 and the war on terror, all sorts of really, really interesting photographic writings were, were produced, and lots of new ground was broken in terms of history and theory. But what I wanted to do was to provide, a, as I say, a concerted account and an analysis, which also looked at where we'd come from and where we were going. And one of the things that I looked at in the Brighton vinyl through a show called uh, Iraq Through the Lens of Vietnam
1: mm-hmm. was
0: the huge differences in um, the media, in photographic technology, in the political background, uh, and in the effects that uh, images of war had on publics.
1: Well, you say that you're not a curator, even though I detect aspects of the kind of care and attention that you pay to in a book that might come from some of these experiences. But since you do want to identify as an art historian, I guess it's a fair question to ask you to give me an elevator pitch for the argument you make in the book.
0: Well, in brief, the book is about the way in which uh, photographic images in particular are used um, to prosecute warfare, uh, the way in which they can become... Uh, what the Pentagon called force multipliers. Uh, mm. In other words, you have a military force, but that military force can be multiplied in various ways, uh, including the use of propaganda. So it looks at the field, a different field of, of various military images, but in particular the way in which images can be used by, well, both the Pentagon and its enemies uh, as, as force multipliers to um, increase... Uh, propaganda and military effects
1: okay well how do you situate yourself in in this field there's of course an enormous amount of literature and theory and i imagine the archival materials that to do with the vietnam war and and the subsequent conflicts have been quite vast so it'd be good to understand a little bit where where you begin your exploration
0: yes well there's um An unconscionable amount of of literature around all Mm. these things. Uh, I believe there's something like 50,000 books written about the Vietnam War. Most of them, of course, by Americans, most of them from the viewpoint of the dominant power. So it's not necessarily a very good literature. You certainly wouldn't want to read the whole thing. (laughs) Um, And much of it, of course, also from the point of view of um, uh, American soldiers. It was a difficult project, and I don't think I realized when I started it how difficult it would be. It took uh, all in all about 10 years to write the thing. Mm. Um, And uh, as you'll appreciate from having read it, it's a very long book. Uh, Although I tried to make it, uh, I wouldn't say an easy read, because much of the (laughs) the material that I'm looking at is quite grueling. But at least I wanted to make it as clear and as accessible for a general reader as possible. Mm. But in terms of things that have been, you know, going on and which which, you know, really stimulated me, uh, it was partly to do with new kinds of image production and um, new ways into photojournalism. So one might think of people like Thomas Dwarzak, for instance, who was the president of Magnum for a while, uh, and his very interesting interventions uh in making in making little books about Taliban studio portraiture for mm-hmm. instance or making Instagram mind books uh to do with the Ukraine Russia conflict in fact uh so uh, assembling you know social media strands in a sense um and and looking at the the whole range of production which is open on these platforms so that you get juxtapositions of again atrocity images pictures of people's girlfriends cats and food uh mm-hmm. ruins uh, all of these things in, you know, uh, in a kind of rather ghastly uh, proximity. Here, at Van Kestren would be another very good example. Uh, someone who made, you know, remarkable work, both embedded and unembedded in Iraq, uh, and work which was always more one felt on the side of the civilians than, than the armed forces that he was sometimes obliged to accompany. Um, but also someone who um, builds those things into large multimedia installations um, Mm and has found new ways of showing it and produces really interesting books out of that material as well. Or Eugenie Dolberg with her book Open Shutters of Iraq, which is a really remarkable project to a great risk to these women to train Iraqi women in the art of photographic storytelling. Uh, she did this in workshops in Syria, which was then safe, and then to get them back into Iraq uh, and, and get to tell their stories, some really remarkable views of that war from the point of view of Iraqi women. particularly women who have uh, suffered more perhaps than anybody else through all of this. So there's, there's those sorts of practices, and then alongside that, uh, a lot of rethinking of uh, photographic theory. Ariella Azoulay is you know, one obvious figure that yeah. one we'll point to here. Ways of thinking which move beyond the sort of rather postmodern terminus that a lot of photographic theory had got into uh, and ways that move beyond a rather, I thought, reflex thinking which comes out of Michel Foucault and would reduce all of this to a sort of hmm. power discourse yeah. so that photography can never make any interventions, uh, and never any radical interventions anyway. Yeah, I would point to that, or uh, Harriman and Lou remarkable work on um, iconic images uh, and the conditions under which they're made, Uh, or Blake Stimson's work on the public sphere and on the family of man, um, and on what he sees as a sort of fairly brief moment, especially in the US, when possibilities are opened for humanist photography in a kind of non-imperialist global
1: consciousness. Well, you've mentioned quite a few thinkers, writers, and quite a lot of approaches already, and, and they do all make they do all surface in the book at one point or another. And in as yeah. much as our conversation isn't supposed to be strictly an advert for your book, I do want to make it clear to our listeners that this is an incredibly impressive effort, and it is readable, bizarrely, despite, it, despite its subject matter. You have 20-odd self-contained essays, which, and I think the project overall is not a challenge, but it is. It is a successor to the ambition of something like Ariel Aszelay's "The Social Contract of Photography." This, this is definitely one of those books that should circulate in art history departments and much, much further. So that's that's my compliment for you. Now let's go back to okay. doing the the dirty work of of figuring out how we approach this this vast array. Could Vietnam and Iraq be any different? And how do we even begin to understand these these histories? How do you even take a step back to understand what photography in the media, but the still image in particular, which is your preoccupation here, how do we even think about that as a component to these vast war machines?
0: Well, maybe it's helpful to start where I started, really, which was with thinking about what happens after Vietnam uh, and when the U.S. military's immediate response to what became uh, a PR debacle, in a sense, uh, when all sorts of images started to be released into the media, which they didn't want people to see, mm. and more than that, as the war progressed, that people started to be able to read those images uh, in ways that they didn't want them to be read. So, it's not just a matter that atrocities were shown, some very famous ones like um, at the burning by napalm of uh, Kim Fug, yeah. but that people understood that these images were part of a systematic, even genocidal effort against the Vietnamese peasantry. So the immediate reaction of the Pentagon then was to say, well, okay, we won't allow photographers into the war zone. Anymore. Yeah. And this they did for quite a long time. But that broke down for various reasons. Uh, one was to do with the fact that after a while they couldn't control it anymore, especially as technology mm-hmm. um, increased and uh, you know, satellite communications became easier. Uh, so it was m- more difficult for them to exclude photographers from the from the war zones. So they then moved to thinking, well, how do we control the ones that are yeah. there? And really, in many ways, not just in terms of the media, but also in terms of military strategy, the Iraq War was supposed to be the negative image, the opposite of mm-hmm. the war in Vietnam. So it was meant to be short. Focused with really clear aims. It was supposed to be mostly done with um, small groups of spearhead elite troops moving very fast in a kind of blitzkrieg model. And those were to be people were to be accompanied by photographers who were not directly censored, but because they were embedded with the military for long periods of time, they couldn't leave military protection because they lived uh, and worked and were aided by those military units. The idea was that they would come to strongly identify with them, which for the most part yeah. did happen, uh, and would produce a spectacular view of war, which could be used as a military tool in many ways, but one which was highly sympathetic to you know, the US military operations. And it was a great success at first, it must be said this. Um, first, the military campaign was a success in toppling the Iraqi regime and destroying its army. Well, kind of destroying, many of them ran away in part because they were seeing these images and yeah. they were not prepared to fight for Sudan. So as I say, it, it, at first this, uh, this idea of the revolution in military affairs yeah. in which all information, including media channels, were kind of focused into the war effort. Uh, I mean, a great example of this is the um, attack on, on the Iraqi government buildings with cruise yeah. missiles and bombers uh, in the opening night of the war. All it's a sort of very bloody and spectacular firework display put on for the media who were camped out mm. in a hotel across the, the river Euphrates. And the idea of that, absolutely, was to use the images generated to discourage um, the Iraqi armed forces in particular yeah. and perhaps the regime too. And because of the speed at which these images circulated, uh, again, it kind of worked. Uh, most of the Iraqi troops were not prepared to hang around to be slaughtered. Of course, in the long term, it all starts to come apart. Uh, and particularly as uh, you know, the country spirals into guerrilla resistance and then virtual civil war, it starts to look a lot more like Vietnam again. The Americans can't get out. Uh, they're stuck there. You know, being subject to continual small scale attack. So they become a police force for uh, a fabulously corrupt regime. And that's also a big parallel yeah. with Vietnam, uh, which is trying ostensibly to rebuild the country, but in fact is just channeling billions of dollars uh, into the pockets of whoever can steal it.
1: Mm. Well, those images are very familiar to us at the moment, but. Julian, I'm going to hazard a guess that you're not that much older than me, therefore, neither you nor me saw the accounts of Vietnam in anything that could resemble contemporaneity. Um, but I think it's quite important to understand what it is that you are trying to do in a book, for us to think a little bit about the kind of accounts that Vietnam produces in media and in photography in particular, Um, and I'm thinking about accounts produced by both sides. So I want you to tell us a little bit about the technologies that produce these media accounts, the kind of regimes and um, distribution mechanisms and, and mechanisms of censorship that end up supporting them, and if we can already start thinking maybe about the aesthetics of the, those images,
0: in terms of the photography produced uh, on on behalf of the Western media, it fell into two main kind of groups. There was the immediate news images, which were almost always black and white and were you know shown in the newspapers the next day. They were rather faster to get to the news than TV at the time mm-hmm. uh, because the. Uh, TV tapes had to be shipped, so there's no way to yeah. transmit them. So these images would be taken by photographers uh, on sort of mini embeds, either with the Vietnamese Army, South Vietnamese Army, or the, uh, or the Americans, uh, and then uh, taken to an office in Saigon, looked through, printed up, and then that office would, you know, say the office of Associated Press, would have to decide which images it was going to send. And they had to be sent, be sent over radio. So there were wire transmissions over radio. They could be disrupted by the weather and various other hmm. events. And they could only send a few because it was okay. a very slow process. Even if lots of pictures had been taken, they weren't necessarily seen or not immediately. And then you had feature photographers among the most famous of the war, including people like Philip Jones Griffiths or uh, Larry Burrows, uh, Don McCullen, um, those are the famous uh, British ones, uh, many others, Dan Stone and so on, um, who worked for the illustrated magazines, the most famous of which was Life magazine. Yeah. And they could, although they, did, they didn't all, uh, make their work in colour. Uh, they would work on much more relaxed schedules. They didn't have to go back to the office every day. They could work, you know, take uh, extended time to cover stories. They also thought less in terms of single images than in terms of picture stories. And how to yeah. assemble
1: those? Were these feature photographers also usually embedded, or were they more independent? Once you got accreditation, um, which
0: was the U.S. military saying you were okay to work with them, mm-hmm. you were not obliged to embed with them. But if you wanted access to the battlefield, that was really the only way that you could do yeah. it. So you would then, you know, ride in their transport and you know accompany uh, troops. Uh, but as I say, you could do other work. Philip Jones Griffiths is a good example of a photographer who spent quite a lot of time on U.S. Army operations, but more time really with Vietnamese civilians, working with them and working on on their living conditions, on the ways in which the occupation had affected them, and of course on the you know the terrible impact of vast amounts of U.S. Bombing and shelling and napalm and you know, destruction of the environment through Agent Orange and you know, bulldozing forests, all the rest of it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Embeds were important, and the military were courted by many photographers to get exclusive access. But at the same time, it wasn't mandatory right. uh, in the way that it became more in
1: Iraq. Well, I think it would be a shame for us to continue this conversation for much longer without tackling some of the images. And I should say that the book contains many dozens of reproductions of both colour and black and white images, so it is a nice illustrated history, at the very least, of of the two conflicts. So I'd like to ask you to choose an image or a couple that we could have a look at and, and maybe think through some of the aesthetic imperatives that determine what it is that audiences back at home end up seeing. And I'm going to paste a link to maybe a preview of one of these pictures into the show notes so listeners can check them out.
0: I mean, one of the, the most well-known images of the Vietnam War is a notorious picture of the execution of a NLF suspect, that's a National Liberation Front. It's a sort of uh, respectable term for what was often called mm. the Viet Cong, which uh, yeah. is a pejorative term in, in Vietnam. Uh, the guerrillas fighting the occupation. So uh, it it shows the execution of an NLF suspect um, by the head of police, the Saigon police, um, in the street during the Tet Offensive in 1968. It's become so famous partly because of what it shows, which is that you you are literally seeing an execution at the moment it takes place. The bullet has left the police officer's gun. It's entered the suspect's head. So the timing of it is very remarkable. And it's now often remembered perhaps more because of that than because of its political import. But at the time, its political import was quite explosive because the prisoner was bound. His hands were bound behind Mm. his back. Uh, So he'd been taken prisoner and was just shot in cold blood by this guy. And at the time, it was framed as a sort of justifiable act of revenge, although, you know, this is a very murky set of circumstances. It doesn't seem to actually be true, but this was the the way, uh, for instance, which the New York Times used to try and kind of defang the political import of that image, which was spelled out very clearly by anti-war politicians. He said, "Well, look, this is a clear violation of Geneva Codes of uh, of, uh, of war." So, the other thing that would have been known, certainly by many of the Vietnamese, uh, or even by uh, Americans living there at that time. that so this guy, uh, the, the head of police, Loan, in Saigon, was in charge of this vast apparatus of um, torture, false imprisonment, and murder. So while this image was often in the West sort of pitched as this rather extraordinary picture of an extraordinary event, for those who were there, it was have been seen as well an extraordinary picture of a very common event, even at the hands of this very individual, let alone of the apparatus that he uh, was governing. So there's a sense in which it does gear you into the wider horror of that war. And it was uh, used in exactly that way by the anti-war movement in yeah. the United States.
1: That, I think, is a good introduction to really start thinking about the kinds of images that that particular conflict already produces. So on the one hand, we have the pro-war, pro-intervention PR that is still in its infancy, but it's orchestrated by the US military, the embed system, as you write in the book. So I'd like to to, to talk about the types of imagery, literally photographic tropes that are being exported and what they ended up doing to the US audience. And second, if if that already starts happening in Vietnam, to think about the circulation of those images, but also images produced by the Vietnamese, by the Vietnamese resistance, and how the Vietnamese population, fighters and civilians, react to whatever access to images and image-making equipment they have.
0: The aesthetics are are quite variable in a way, uh, Mm -hmm. and they have quite complex formations, I think. so. You have photographers who are going in who are really coming out of the humanist tradition uh, in photojournalism, whose photographic avatars are people like Henri Cartier-Bresson. So they're trying, to, striving for, usually in black and white, a, a confluence of striking compositions, compositional coherence, but also coherent social storytelling. Mm-hmm. Um, either at the level of the individual image or at the level of the picture story. Um, and the lat- in the latter, someone like W. Eugene Smith, the famous committed humanist photographer in the United States, uh, would be another model. So this is, it's universal or it seeks to be, it's deeply humanist, it's very expressive, it's emotional, it's quite dramatic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, shades of black and white. You see this in Philip Jones Griffith's work. You see it in a different way in Don McCullin's work. I think people who can really, from very difficult, uncontrolled circumstances, produce social storytelling and you know, very striking compositions. You know, McCullen doing so while being shot at. I mean, it's a rare talent, that. <laughs> so that's one side of it. And then also, I think there's a, there's a newer way for photography people like Robert Frank, Diane Arbus, Gary Winogrand, Lee Friedland, and others. Uh, And their their work, better known perhaps in the art world, but it sort of leaks into photojournalism as well, and of course some of them start as photojournalists, where there's more questioning of that humanist basis and indeed of the compositional means that underpin it. So much more casual and off-kilter arrangements Suggestions of you know large empty spaces perhaps uh, in the image which dwarf or otherwise you know, throw the the figures in it into a sort of tension which suggests social alienation. The war was a deeply alienating setting, both for the troops, of course, who were you know, transported thousands of miles from home, dumped, you know, many of them conscripts dumped into a society they had little understanding of and in many cases were forced forced to debase it. And from the point of view of the Vietnamese, they understood the society, but it was changing extremely fast. There was the, the what part of the American strategy was this huge program of forced urbanization mm-hmm. at the point of the gun, really. And so people who had been peasants and were deeply embedded in the rural life and its rituals and religion and modes of labor found themselves living in slums in Saigon other cities and being forced to survive in whatever the way they could so you get that anti-humanist or perhaps unhumanist mode of photography also applied to the description of this new very dark, very disturbing, uh, and in a sense, somewhat deranged social reality. I mean, if you look at the work of Tim Page, for instance, Mm -hmm. uh, he's someone who, in part, glories in the apparatus of war, but also has a very clear idea that it's unleashed some very, very dark psychic forces, um, which he documents meticulously, in a kind of lurid colour, very often. (laughs) And in ways which photographic ways which get at some of that social dislocation uh, and dysfunction, alienation and
1: dread, what kind of circulation do these images get at the time, so apart from of course being being in the press and and I presume also being screenshot and, and, and on television once in a while do do these images also circulate in in the art world such as it is at the time do they Is there already a kind of clear crossover between? Different spheres that might have an interest in, in image production.
0: Okay, so they circulate. Obviously, first and foremost in the newspapers and magazines. Then they circulate also in the anti-war samizdat press. Um, some of which had, you know, uh, like Ramparts, for instance, were almost emulated life in their format. So they were quite glossy uh, magazines. So they had quite wide circulation. I think that's one of the big differences uh, between the Iraq War and the Vietnam War. But there were plenty of critical images made during the Iraq War. But especially early in that war, when it mattered, they weren't mm. much published. So, yeah, they were seen uh, and the art world did indeed pick them up. Or I should say rather the the anti-war, often rather marginalized aspect of the art world. Yeah. Um, people like Martha Rosler, of course, famously using those images uh, in a photo series called Bringing the War Back Home and many others, you know, uh, circulating and working on
1: on those images. Mm. Well, I'm going to ask you to speed up now, Julian, um, at least metaphorically. One of the things that you develop in a book is this idea of photographic speed in which you observe a parallel between the kind of processes of technology of photography as it is used in Vietnam, being slow, slow being a technical term that relates to film photography, um, and the rapid development in those technologies. That means that by the time we get to the 21st century, photography is technically a very different thing, but also in a certain sense, photography speeds up in volume, in speed of transmission, um, speed of interpretation and circulation, to the extent that photography from being this kind of reflective medium that you have just described, becomes a medium that can be understood to, in a certain sense, drive and create events.
0: Well, what the book tries to do is, as you say, bring together different kinds of speed uh, and think about speed, Uh, both not only in terms of just a development from the 1960s to the present, but also the different speeds at which the different sides were moving. So I do look at uh, North Vietnamese and NLF photography quite a bit, uh, and those photographers will have very, very limited means. Uh, They could only travel very slowly. They certainly couldn't send their pictures by wire at least until the the very last phase of the war and so it might well be that an NLF photographer might be eating out a roll or two of film over many months Mm -hmm. then have to either take it or send it back up the Ho Chi Minh trail to get to publication uh, in Hanoi it might only find publication uh, a year after it was taken so the very idea of what counts as photographic news in those circumstances is completely different from the model I was talking about earlier of you know, daily either shipment yeah. or transmission by wire of, of, of film. So there's that, that, the speed of transmission and transport. There's the speed of film itself, and well, with digital, it's not that the basic physics are transcended, but that it becomes possible to take images much more easily in circumstances. Mm-hmm. It would have been very, very challenging, if not impossible, but for those using film in earlier days. There's a speed of the transmission of the film through the camera come to that, all sorts of things. But I think more fundamentally what I wanted to look at was the speed of cultural transmission. Um, and it's striking, as with the First World War in a sense, but with the Vietnam War too. But it was a long time before it, there seemed to be a settled and adequate Way of depicting it, say, in film. Now, the, the famous you know, Vietnam War films come quite a lot later. Whereas one of the things that happens in Iraq really quite quickly is that there are pretty striking cinematic renditions, there are film series, some of them even starring um, troops taken from elite forces who are playing themselves, essentially. Uh, there are video games. Hmm. And these things are seen. Quite immediately, the video games are maybe played by the troops in the field. And so you get this quite rapid sort of cycling and reinforcement of what this war is supposed to look like, often in rather cliched ways, uh, and the way in which it's supposedly conducted. So, I mean, I think that is quite new. And also the speed of reception as well is very different. I mean, we talked already about the way in which images are used as tools of war, uh, as As very fast circulating propaganda devices, but it also makes a difference. I think when you know troops are able to see themselves depicted very soon after, if not immediately after uh, you know those, those photographs being taken and one of the constraints of embedding, not an official one, but an unofficial one, was photographers being concerned that the troops that they were sh- shown may be misbehaving would get to see those images and then react and throw them out of the unit or threaten them or even hmm. uh, hurt them. So, yeah, all of that changes, I think. Um, and I think it's also linked to something that David Harvey talks about in terms of postmodern culture, which is that when you start to reach the limits, the capitalism has to keep growing, obviously, to remain capitalism. Uh, And when you start to reach the physical limits of exploiting the Earth's surface or bringing new people into the workforce, um, colonial conquest and all the rest of it, you have to start finding methods of growth which are to do not so much with physical things, but perhaps with various elaborate forms of the manipulation of money and stocks and shares and so on, but also cultural things too you can speed those especially if they're digital and you can speed those up much faster uh, than anything else so this idea that there's continual growth continual intensification continual sort of um move towards greater speed of circulation is sort of built into the very system it's not uh it's not historically contingent in that sense
1: Well, you say this, but the book identifies quite a few very big, pronounced, strategically designed shifts. So one of the things that you introduced earlier in the book is the the, um, revolution in military affairs. You've already mentioned this term, but it's a term that's Mm. official to the extent that it's an acronym. Um, It's essentially a concerted effort by the Pentagon to spend no less than $1.6. The a billion or trillion dollars, honestly, in military, in military terms. The, 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 the number of zeros at the end of the number doesn't really matter. We're talking mm-hmm. about the early 2000s when the Pentagon essentially has a PR operation which considers wholesale everything that it does from the embed to virtual reality to prognosis of what the image might look like. They, they really think about this in a way that no branding agency would be able to do for a chocolate bar. And you know, and we have as as a result of that, we have these kind of almost contrite examples now of the this iconic footage of the statue of Saddam Hussein being toppled in Baghdad, which you point out in the book was of course not the kind of jubilant spontaneous event that we were told it was mm. but see that that even that to me now seems like kind of almost trivial media manipulation it's the kind of thing we we expect but you 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 highlight in the book so many much more subtle but much more damning ways in which our media universe is essentially a military invention, almost as if the production and reception of media images is is a military intervention. And a military invention, so I, I maybe I could ask you to talk a little bit about some of the kind of far flying aspects that, that that you highlight to to exemplify this. You talk about war games, virtual reality, and you give examples of a couple of very strange collaborations between the military regime and and the entertainment industry, which again on reflection, nothing strange at all because we this is this is the film the movies that we watch all the times, but you talk about games like full spectrum warrior and also about some artists who engage with these things how how are we to think about these things in terms of their aesthetics and in terms of the long-term contribution to the perpetrator as an actor in in some kind of a war reality
0: uh, okay i mean i did a analysis of of computer games uh, you know way back in the 90s uh and when obviously the technology was very different but one of the things that struck me and I guess it's pretty obvious in retrospect, is that whereas you know if you are watching a John Wayne movie like the Green Berets, um, you may or may not believe it's propaganda, but your relationship to it is quite passive. If you're t- playing a war game, computer war game, uh, then in a sense you are obliged to perform uh, and conform to the rules. Okay, uh, you either accept the game's rules largely and play it and do the killing that is required of you, or you don't play it. I mean, there's, there's very little room for, uh, certainly at that time, for uh, non-conformity or thinking about uh, wider consequences. So uh, in terms of perpetrators, I thought that was that's that's significant, and it's something that the army definitely exploits. I mean, they make their own 1st person shoot 'em up called America's Army. They use it as a recruiting tool. They're very aware of and exploit Computer interfaces, so that you will find that you know some of the weapons interfaces used in the U.S. Army resemble Playstations, mm-hmm. and it's not an accident uh, because you know this is what they know. Their conscripts will be familiar with, and not only that, they actually use the technology.
1: Yeah, I mean that's to, just basic ba- basic u- so. user interface design at some at some yes. trivial level. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah, yeah uh so there's all that going on um i mean lisa barnard uh, who's a very interesting photographic artist here has done quite a lot of work on this military industrial use of the gaming environments which is not only used for training but also um you know rather bizarrely in many ways for helping people to get over ptsd after they come mm-hmm. back from uh, war zones uh that there's a sort of a safe way in the sense of rehearsing some aspects of what they've been through.
1: Well, I think that the safety is quite a key word. And I want us to drill down a little bit on the move that photography and media make from being a record and a reproduction and a restaging, at some senses, of events to what, to me, seems like a completely different scenario in which photography is not only complicit, but produces abuses, produces conflict, produces war. You start the book by quoting Donald Ransfeld, who at some point says that it's impossible, or at least tiresome, to try to conduct war in front of a camera. And By the time we get to 2003, to the images from Abu Ghraib, the images of torture um, performed by U.S. troops and military contractors on the, um, the enemy prison population, I kind of start reading into this an element by which the camera actually creates the torture. So there's a way in which documenting torture is, of course, a, um, a tool of warfare. But trying to think a little bit about what happens with the perpetrators of torture, I'm, I'm almost I'm always inspired to think that photography eggs them on, so to speak. And I don't think this is a position you necessarily take in the book, so I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on this.
0: Uh, I think that photography, almost since its invention, has been used for purposes which are, are tied up with violence and exploitation, especially with documenting victories over an enemy uh, and the humiliation and destruction of that enemy. You might think about Photographs of the of the communards in Paris in their coffins, for instance, uh, after the suppression of the commune in the eighteen seventies, in eighteen seventy. So it's a long history. Um, it you know one which has always been pursued also by uh, photographic amateurs, especially soldiers, um, right mm-hmm. back to the First World War or maybe even before that. So in a sense, in looking at the pictures of Abu Ghraib, there's nothing very new about them. Well, what is new is, well, there are two things, I think, which stand out about those images. One is that the the camera itself was used as a weapon of of torture or an instrument mm-hmm. of torture. This is because those prisoners were subject to blackmail threats. So when they were forced to simulate homosexual sex, for instance, they knew they were being recorded. They... The threat was always that, you know, these images would go get back to their friends and loved ones, that it would make life impossible for them, in, in, in essence, in uh, in Iraq. And especially if, if they were women, that, you know, they would be subject to honor killings and, and all the rest of it. Mm. So the camera was absolutely a tool of torture in that sense. I, I think that is new, and I think it's perhaps to do with uh, the fact that they were using digital images and they could show these images to the prisoners Yeah, um, you know, at, the, at the point at which they were being taken. Uh, but it's not as if, of course, cameras are not being used for the humiliation of prisoners long before that. I think the other thing about Abu Ghraib is that, right, these are amateur images, and normally a huge amount of doubt hangs around amateur images is one of the very salient interventions of uh, here Van in his book, Baghdad Calling, that he seeks to verify a lot of amateur images so that we can have some trust in what we're seeing. But generally, they circulate in these grey realms in which authenticity is uh, an attribution are very, very hard to come by. And they're often recycled um, you know, and used on both sides of a political divide, for instance. The Abergrave images, because they were acknowledged by the military and became the subject of a criminal investigation within the military, you know, they're very hard to disbelieve in that mm-hmm. sense. So it was very hard to cast it there was lots of interpretative doubt cast about them, you know, whether this was really torture or merely a kind of high school hazing. So, you know, the, the regime, the Bush regime, you know, did its best to neuter those images in that way. What you couldn't do was just reject them and say that they were fakes, for yeah. instance. Uh yeah. I think they were received very, very differently in the Middle East, um and in the and in the US and in allied countries. In the US, obviously they were a source of quite a bit of shock that US troops would behave in this way. And of course, also the shock to some extent that women were involved in this. Mm-hmm. In Iraq, as um uh, Robert Fisk and others say. They were taken as another piece of evidence for something that was extremely well known. Anymore. It wasn't as if these were aberrations in any sense; just standard operating practice. The fact that they happened to have been recorded and then released uh, and officially sanctioned—that's the only unusual thing about them. In that sense, there's a certain parallel, I think, with the Eddie Adams picture, with the execution picture. Yeah.
1: So you mentioned you mentioned the problems of authenticity and interpretation want to ask you about your take and how you integrate the multiplicity of those kind of narratives. So Iraq of course is different from Vietnam in a sense that the media warfare is a little bit more balanced between the sides. It's not like Iraq has a massive media infrastructure, but we do have channels like Al Jazeera coming into existence and taking a structured and and very alternative view. How do we piece all of these pieces together? Because we have the Pentagon doing its own PR, we have the media being semi independent, but also not so semi not so independent, we have Western soldiers t- doing their own photography, we have Iraqis doing their own photography for a variety of different reasons. How do we take a step back and think about the nature of photography as evidence, as a testament to? something that then composes history not only because we have now so many sources at the same time but because these sources cannot really be assumed to be independent even of the kind of filtration and manipulation mechanism that we have already understood
0: okay well that's a very big question and in a sense <laughs> uh i hope that the book as it stands uh is is a sort of answer to it in a sense because what it what, what yeah. the book tries to do is to take this large variety of of images, not to take any of it uh, on its own terms entirely, but to contextualize it, to think about it historically, technologically, politically, uh, in terms of the media, in terms of military strategy, uh, and you know many other elements, in terms of political constitution of the state to some extent, and how it declares enemies with this, um, and to provide an account which allows you to see these this sort of field of war imagery very diverse war imagery not as a unitary field but as a competing field of different interests i suppose and the kinds of moves that people make within that field so that's why in a, in a sense the book is as long and as complex as it is because it's not you know easy to do that also it, it it traces really a huge transformation of that field i mean if one thinks about vietnam Yes, there were US soldiers using their own cameras and taking many atrocity pictures, for instance, but we tended not to get to see those mm-hmm. uh because they were physical prints and you know, they were just kept quiet and maybe hidden under in boxes under beds for a long time before relatives destroyed them and that kind of thing. Um, a few leak out but not much. And then you have the Western media. We've, we've discussed to some extent and then you have the the vietnamese doing their images as well not many uh, amateur vietnamese because the technology is unavailable and too expensive especially mm-hmm. in the north but those images are not so available in the west they're used a bit by the anti-war movement and they're occasionally collated into anti-war books like felix green's vietnam vietnam so that that happens a bit but It's very easy not to see them, and certainly you wouldn't see them in the mainstream press. They were essentially banned, despite the fact that they're remarkable images, aesthetically, technically, uh, socially, and otherwise. I mean, they're they're very, very fine images, ones which would surely have found an audience if they were allowed to appear. But there was a complete ban on them, essentially, and it takes a a full generation, really, uh, over 30 years for them to start to be the subject of exhibitions and books. So that's, that's one thing. And it, it has another consequence, actually, because the Vietnamese know that the, their own images will not find much circulation in the press. They do things to help the Western press, and they tend to mm. project, protect journalists, for instance, and photojournalists operating mm. at the front, and very few are killed by line of sight weapons by the enemy. Uh, and they have an extensive spying network which runs through Associated Press and, and other press agencies, so they know where these people are going to be. By the time of the Iraq War, things have really obviously changed profoundly. And you mentioned Al Jazeera, which is you know, really important, uh, and other non-Western um, news outlets, which can provide a different photojournalistic and video and you know video uh, experience and different sorts of interpretations and ones which are. For instance, fixed on Iraqi citizens and civilians rather than on military operations. So that's hugely important. But the other thing is that the the emerging, you know, resistance groups, which are very various uh, and you know fissured in all sorts of ways by ethnicity and religion, particularly um, tribal affiliation and so forth, they make their own media, right, and they can mm-hmm. distribute it um, at first on. On DVD, but later, you know, over the internet as uh, as it begins to take off um, in Iraq, so they don't need the the Western media, and in fact, they come to see the Western media, which is much more, in you know, to generalize, much more clearly aligned with the U.S. military and with mainstream thinking. It had been in Vietnam; they see them as a resource to be exploited. Either to be killed for propaganda or to be kidnapped for money, and so it quickly becomes very, very difficult to make uh, uh, imagery in Iraq, and the normal practice of photojournalism is more or less closed down. You know, the New York Times compound is protected by um, watchtowers with belt-fed machine guns. There's no way you can go out without a huge military escort and that kind of thing. And so there's a, there's a way in which the situation becomes so dangerous that normal photographic reporting from on the western side from Iraq uh, almost ceases. And they start to have to rely a lot on Iraqi photographers, many of whom are very committed, very brave, and very interesting uh, uh, people. But, but it's not easy for them to work either. It's still very, very dangerous. Yeah, but that's, that's just an example, I suppose, of that huge transformation of the image field and the way in which it fissures as well, I think, because there's, there's no example of that kind of hostility between the different image-making groups, I think, in the same way as in, in
1: Vietnam. Let's keep moving, though, because there is a way in which warfare continues to change its nature. So in a way that the, the war on warfare just changes territory, the enemy occasionally becomes rebranded. One underlying change that we do notice and that you do write about in the book is the move towards drone and aerial warfare. That um, is the characteristics of the time of the Obama administration. So one of the things that seems to happen is that to record this kind of warfare on the ground becomes to an extent more difficult. And I guess I'm seeing a little bit of a problem for traditional media organizations in, in doing this, how one covers operations that don't necessarily manifest in material other than that provided by the Pentagon or the armed forces. That becomes a little bit problematic. And I'm interested in a way in which that particular moment brings war to the attention of a certain new generation of artists. I'm thinking of people like Trevor Paglan. James Bridle or Omar Fast. So um, I want to ask you a little bit about the change in the aesthetics but also the mode of production of photography as we move to the era of drone warfare.
0: I mean I you know, I think it's an exaggeration to say that these, uh, these issues such as drone warfare drop out of the media entirely. I mean, uh, uh, you know, there are honourable people who continue to uh, research this area, even to try and photograph it uh, on the ground uh, and to rehearse it, uh, to research it journalistically. I mean, media Benjamin for is one of the people who've written a really good book uh, about drone warfare and its effects on those people who are subject to it, and not just those who are directly harmed by being blown up. But those people who live under the threat that they might be all the time, there's you know terrible psychological effects over you know huge swathes of you know bits of Pakistan and Afghanistan in particular. So there's that side. Uh, but I think you you're right that you know many artists have started to do really interesting. Have uh, for quite a long time now have been doing really interesting work in this area. And I suppose it's because in a sense that the what comes out of official channels is. Rather poor material is either kept secret, uh, entirely secret, and we get don't get to see it, or on occasion when they want to declare some kind of victory that someone has been successfully Mm. targeted or whatever, you you get to see a bit of rather poor quality video. So yes, uh, an opportunity opens for artists um, such as James Bridle or Emma Fast to really explore that image world and to create new kinds of ways of. Visualizing and feeling about this Bridal is one of those interesting people who sort of straddles research uh, yeah. and uh, art practice in a sense uh, and you know offers new information as well as you know new ways of visualizing uh, the drone strike uh, issue. Uh, Fast is someone who in that remarkable film best from five thousand feet, imagines another world in which someone more like you, the, the putative viewer. Um, might be targeted by these things, mm. um, and you know you see an American family who are blown up in their station wagon. But also, you know, with these remarkable aerial shots of Las Vegas, which of course is yeah. very close to where some of these bases are, out of which the, where the drone pilots um, do their work. You know, is giving you a rich and detailed and impressive and emotive vision of the drone pilots' view so yeah uh, I, and there are many many other artists who worked in this in this area and i think it is it's an open field i think uh, where artists can make uh quite striking uh political and re- sometimes research led uh, contributions uh, just because otherwise the issue is so subterranean and so the, the visual images around it are very poor mm.
1: Well, one of the things that artists tend to do, if I can hazard this simplification, is that they produce quite often memorable singular images that are sometimes abstractions of a certain set of ideas or certain realities. And I wanted to ask you about the role of singular iconic images in the present. Of course, your book is filled with accounts and reproductions and theorizations of many such images that have already circulated in public consciousness have contributed in the way that we described to the, the production of, of those events in a certain sense. But do you see this kind of production ongoing? Do singular images still exist? Is there something that still comes out, comes to represent a particular event?
0: Yeah, my, my suspicion is that the, the occasional production of images that became become iconic, uh, remembered collectively by large groups in the public, and and, and get published over and over again, that it may have ceased. I'm not sure because it may be too soon to tell. Uh, You Mm -hmm. can only really know if an image is going to be iconic and and, and last through decades uh, after time has passed. But I think the effect of the sheer number of images, as you say, the flow of images over social media. Um, does suggest that um, it's the power of the icon is fading. And I think it was even fading in Iraq, although there were some uh, examples of professional photojournalism which looked like they were going to get that kind of traction. Um, they're not so well-known anymore, those images. And the ones that are uh, were made by amateurs, which is striking in itself, particularly hmm. the Abu Ghraib images. Although even those, it seems to me, have been... Uh, fading from public consciousness
1: somewhat yeah i wonder to what extent the algorithm at certain point takes over you know there's some kind of perversity in being the u.s defense secretary logging into facebook and facebook saying your memories from 10 years ago remember what atrocities (laughs) you were you were committing at the time but 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 again this is not a trivial point it deals with how the image changes its roles in the mediation of of collective memories and this is something that you. You devote a whole section to in a book yes and,
0: and of course you're, you're quite right that uh, the image is no longer simply an image but uh a, you know a, a data point uh among others and um, with lots of associated kind of metadata carried along with it and uh subject to all kinds of uh, uh yeah of manipulation into individually tailored you know media streams and that in itself obviously tends to vitiate the public sphere in which the iconic image operates
1: and of course the algorithm takes us from the question of memetic reproduction to the question of memetic production itself i'm thinking in particular about the role of memes in various forms of warfare which you do address in the book And this has been on my mind in particular because I've been writing a little bit about what happens in the media and the meme space of events like the Taliban's takeover of Kabul last year, which was, I think, this kind of masterpiece of media manipulation to an extent. So we saw these images of the Taliban fighters entering Kabul effortlessly, of course, and and playing on dodgeballs in the in a park, uh, going to the gym, eating ice cream, mocking up the the Ibu Jima, um image for their own purposes. So there's a certain extent in which the media representations, having kind of gone from from the control of of organisations like the Pentagon, moves into a more independent sphere possibly moves into the artistic realm and now is just subject of this kind of media speculation and mimetic reproduction. So I wonder wonder how you you started thinking about this.
0: The issue of them being better at it, uh, it, it kind of it was obviously a question which hung around ISIS media productions as well, yeah. you know, um, some years ago, that people were surprised by the polish and sophistication mm. um of their Uh, propaganda campaigns and i think one of the things it enables us to see is that a great deal of photojournalism um as it is filtered and appears in the mainstream western press is also propaganda of of that sort which is not necessarily to condemn it but you know i hope that one of the things that the book does is to help you to see that you know there are always agendas of that kind at play If the Taliban seem to be better at it for the moment than we are, then that's not unconnected from their victory, I think, which, you know, is so, so striking. And I suppose that one of the hopeful things that comes out of what can be uh, a rather bleak read um, uh, in Killing for Show is this idea that American military power has failed and not just in uh, Afghanistan recently, but, you know, that huge apparatus of the revolution in military affairs that you mm. described, the vast sums that they, they spend on their military more generally, and you know the fact that you know, their military spending, I think, outweighed the rest of the world at one point, uh, the whole of the rest of the world taken together. But in the end, they couldn't even hold down the Iraq- Iraqi insurgency and had to get out of there. This is a vast failure. It's, I um, should say, the British Army, um, covered themselves in disgrace too. I mean, not just in terms of their behaviour, but also in terms of um, uh, uh, military efficacy. So, you know, this apparatus, the, the Pentagon and the military industrial complex, which was designed to fight two major wars at once, or a major war on two fronts at once, say to fight Russia and China at the same time, as I say, could not even hold on to these small, um, these small countries. Um, let alone rebuild them or anything like that. So it's and it's I think it's a deep failure of of the neoliberal state as well, in a sense. That it's the way in which it's weakened the state and state capacities and state expertise and the way in which it is, you know, fantastically and sort of constitutionally corrupt, all of this has, you know, meant that it can it's no longer a convincing world. Mm-hmm. Uh, hegemon. Uh, and, you know, it opens a way for, obviously, a multipolar uh, world, which may not be any less dangerous, but uh, at any rate is not um, necessarily committed to this very destructive Anglo-American model of capitalism.
1: Well, that's a very bleak. A moment to end, Julian. There's so much, so much more in the book that we haven't, we haven't even begun to scratch for. I'm um, just a couple of things to mention that you cover in quite a lot of detail: the affairs of Guantanamo Bay, and, and the all of images, images there, the, the what happens when there's nothing to photograph anymore. When you know how how we document the kind of failure to reconstruct a state and the kind of lingering. After effects of war that's quite enough and i, I just want to again <laughs> in a small way as a, as an advert recommend this to anyone who has a university library and is in the business of designing an undergraduate or indeed a postgraduate course on on media theory um incredibly impressive work I want to thank you, thank you for it. What happens next in your own research i hope I hope but I think that's a vain hope that you're going to move into something slightly more cheerful
0: It's funny that you say that um and uh, I started to get interested in cultural populism um, oh, wow. and its relations with political populism uh, uh, some years ago when it seemed like a, a cheerier subject than it is now. So uh, that's what I've been working on. But uh, it, it won't be, a, at least it it has elements of um, social comedy to it, I think, uh, <laughs> and some of the artwork. It's very entertaining. So, um, yeah, it's it, it won't be like this book.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, Julian, thank you very much indeed. Thank you so much for your questions and, and your thoughts. The Link for Show, Photography, War and the Media in Vietnam and Iraq by Julian Stalabras is published by Roman and Littlefield. I'm Pierre D'Ancest and the editor is Marshall Poe. Thank you for listening and join us next time.